Hello, Strange Stories UK here again. This is part two of The Brides in the Bath Murders, series three, episode 17. Please listen to part one before listening to this podcast, otherwise it won't make a great deal of sense. Anyhow, we left George Smith, serial killer, in early 1914, after he had committed his second murder, and he had perfected a system of meeting, marrying and cheating his wives, his bigamous wives, out of their money and belongings. He was now insuring their lives and murdering them to make as much money as possible. The next person that we knew uh, that we know of that was taken in by Smith was Alice Reveal. She was a domestic servant in Woolwich, London, and she was staying at the Royal Oak Hotel in Kinson and Bournemouth while on holiday. On the 7th of September, 1914, Smith came to speak with her as she was sitting in the Winter Gardens. They spoke for an hour. Smith told her that he was an artist and owned land in Canada. They arranged to meet later, later that evening, at the pier at 6pm, and they walked and talked until 9pm and arranged to meet the next day, and then the next. Smith told Alice that his name was Charles Oliver James. They met every evening until Alice had to return to Woolwich on the 15th of September. On the 11th of September, Smith had asked her to marry him, and Alice agreed. They decided that they would pool their money and open an antique shop near Crystal Palace in London. Alice had about £70 and some furniture, including a piano that Smith asked her to sell. When Alice went back to Woolwich... Smith told her that he had found lodgings at Plumstead Common and that he had arranged for them to marry at the registry office in Woolwich for the 17th of September by special licence. They continued to meet each other every evening before their wedding day. Alice sold all of her belongings and raised about £14. After they married, they left Woolwich for their new lodgings at Haffer Road, Battersea Rise, where they had taken two furnished rooms for the short term. By the 21st of September, Smith took possession of the money that Alice had raised and all of her belongings in four boxes at their lodgings. They had withdrawn her money at the Lavender Hill Post Office, a total of £76 and six shillings. And that same evening, they packed all of their belongings with the intention of getting a house to rent. A man with a barrow came to take their belongings to Clapham Station. Left luggage. On their way to Clapham Station on the 22nd of September 1914, Smith and Alice walked through Brockwell Park, talking of moving moving to Canada. Smith said that uh, he had to use the toilet as they walked a short distance away and asked Alice to wait for him. He did not return. Alice waited for an hour and then returned to the lodgings. She never saw her money or belongings again. World War I had started as Smith made his way back to Pegler, who was staying at Western Supermare. Smith had asked Alice Ravel's trunk and belongings. He took Alice and uh, Ravel's trunk and belongings with him, claiming that he had bought them at a sale. Smith stayed with Egg, uh, Edith Pegler at 10 Kennington Avenue, Bristol, for a couple of months, during which time she questioned him about his investments. 
Smith told her that if she ever interfered with his business, she would never have another happy day. She was never to inquire into his dealings or business again. Edith knew that Smith had invested into an endowment policy for himself. And as she thought he was her husband, she must have felt that it was her business. In early December, Smith told Edith that he needed to have another run around again dealing with a mythical friend that he'd invented called the Young Fellow. It seemed that Smith was searching for his next victim, who was to be Margaret Elizabeth Lofty. Margaret was 37-year-old daughter of a clergyman who lived with her mother and two sisters at Bristol. Her father was the Reverend Fitzroy Fuller Lofty. He was now dead. Margaret had been unlucky in love the year before when she had become engaged but then discovered her fiancé was already married. Since that time, Margaret had been employed as a companion to an elderly woman in Bristol. According to her family, she was a quiet, reserved woman who was in good health, although her sister said that she was often depressed. It's not known how Margaret came to meet Smith. She kept it a secret, probably sensing that her family would disapprove of him. She told her family that she was travelling to London to meet with some prospective ladies who needed a companion. When Smith met with Margaret, he was going under the name John Lloyd and he claimed to be a land agent. Smith and Margaret went through a marriage ceremony to become Mr and Mrs Lloyd. Margaret didn't have much of a fortune, just £19 in a savings bank. But before they married, Margaret Lofty completed the form for an endowment policy for £700. She did this on the 4th of December 1914. She lied on the form. She claimed that she was of independent means, she wasn't, and also that she had no intention of getting married, which she was. Smith must have paid for the endowment policy as the premium exceeded the money that was available to her. On the 17th of December 1914, she and Smith were married, both giving their ages 38. Then they both left for London, Smith having booked rooms at 16 Orchard Road, Highgate. At this property, a Miss Heiss was acting as the landlady, and her instructions from the owner of the property was that no one to be, was to be admitted as a lodger without references, as undesirable tenants had recently robbed the house. When Mr and Mrs Lloyd, Smith and Margaret, turned up at the house, they, Smith was very interested in having a look at the bath, which he made the remark was rather small. But they were turned away, as Smith looked so evil in his appearance, and he was unable to supply references. He claimed that the couple had just returned from Canada. What Margaret would have thought of such a blatant lie is not recorded. But anyhow, Smith got very angry and the police were called. Smith managed to find other rooms at uh, Bismarck Road in Highgate, where a Miss Louisa Blatch had rooms to rent, which including a bathroom, which Smith was insisting upon. During her husband's absence, when he popped out, Margaret told Miss Blatch that she did not know of their plans, but they were to go to Scotland for a honeymoon. Margaret wrote to her mother, telling her that she was now married to such a sweet man. A sweet man, a God-fearing man. On the same evening as they settled into their rooms at Bismarck Road, 
this was renamed Waterloo Road during World War I, Smith took Margaret to visit a doctor, a Dr Bates, as Margaret was supposed to have been suffering from a headache. Bates said that he asked her several questions but got no answer. Then he asked her if she really did have a headache, to which she replied yes. Margaret had a slightly raised temperature of 100 and she was having a menstrual period, which made it surprising that she was about to take a bath the next day. It was later suggested that Margaret's bizarre behaviour, she was said to have been in a dazed condition, may have been the result of her being drugged, although there was no evidence of her being drugged. But it's strange that all three women murdered by Smith had headaches just before their deaths, so it remains a possibility that they had been drugged by Smith. The next day, the 18th of December, Margaret went to the offices of a solicitor in Islington and made a will bequeathing everything to her husband, which Smith later claimed to have no knowledge of. He knew nothing about this. On the same day, she withdrew all of her savings from the savings bank. Everything seemed to be falling into place for Smith. Margaret is insured for £700. She's left him everything in her will. Now it just remains for her to die. That evening, Margaret Lofty took a bath at 730 Nobody saw her enter the bathroom, although the people staying at the house heard somebody going up the stairs at the time, but they can't be sure if it was one or two people. Mrs Blatch was sitting in the kitchen working and heard sounds in the bathroom just minutes after somebody had gone upstairs. She said that she heard splashing and the noise of somebody with wet hands on the side of the bath, and then she said that she thought she heard a sigh. Then she heard the sound of somebody playing an organ in the front room for about ten minutes. They were playing the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. It seemed almost as if they were advertising the fact that the person playing, which we take to be Smith, is there in the sitting room. Then Blatch hears the front door slamming and as somebody exits the house. A short while later, Smith knocked on the door, telling Blatch that He'd forgotten his key, seemingly advertising the fact that he was out of the house while his wife was taking a bath. Smith claimed that he'd been out to buy some tomatoes for his wife's supper. In honour's return, he said, I'll ask her whether she wants them. Miss Blatch thought it very strange that he had not asked her before that he went out to go and buy them. Smith called up the stairs to his wife and then said to Blatch, My God, there's no answer. He ran upstairs and shouted down, Come and help me! Another lodger that was staying at the house went up to find Smith had pulled Margaret out of the bath. Dr Bates and the police were sent for, and on his arrival the constable found Smith with his arms around his wife, who was now being lifted out of the bath. It was thus impossible to know the position of her body in the water, because she was drowned. Did I mention that? Not sure. Dr Bates said that he found Margaret naked and a constable performing artificial respiration as Smith stood and watched. He examined the body and pronounced Margaret dead. Her lips were blue and swollen and there was froth coming from her mouth and nostrils. Bates concluded that the death was down to drowning. Bates carried out the post-mortem, describing Margaret as a well-nourished and well-developed woman about five feet four inches in height. Her organs were healthy, 
with some recent bruising, bruising just ab uh, above the left el elbow. Frederick Beckett was the undertaker, who was asked by Smith to organise a funeral. Smith asked for an ordinary internment, which meant being buried in a grave with others, public grave. It was arranged for a burial costing £6 and 10 shillings at Finchley Cemetery. Beckett later said he tried to engage Smith in conversation after the funeral, but Smith was very guarded and said very little. Smith did not write to the relatives, and during the inquest, Smith lied to the coroner that his wife was not insured. The next day, Smith deposited a small parcel with his bank, which was thought to be the insurance policy and will, as Smith did not want these to be discovered amongst his papers, as this would have shown that he had lied to the coroner. Margaret Lofty was buried on the 21st of December 1914, after which Smith went back to Bristol to spend Christmas with Edith Pegler. On the 27th of December 1914, the News of the World newspaper published a small story, headed, Dead in the Bath, a bride's tragic story the day after she is married. This was to prove Smith's undoing as it was read by people that Smith had crossed in the past. Miss Heiss contacted the police regarding Smith's comments that he made about the bath at Orchard Road being too small, a few days before Margaret was found dead. The Crossleys of Blackpool and the Burnhams also contacted the police regarding the similarities between Margaret's death, Margaret Lofty's death, and what they had experienced. The inquest into Margaret's death was held on the 1st of January 1915. Acting on in the information received, the police put a close watch on Smith's movements. On the 4th of January 1915, Smith, calling himself John Lloyd, called his solicitors at Shepherd's Bush, London, regarding the will and the endowment policy on Margaret. On the 1st of February, Smith being completely unaware of police investigating him, returned to his solicitors at Shepherd's Bush and was arrested by Chief Inspector Neal and two other detectives. He was held on the charge of bigamy. Smith was identified by the Burnhams and the Crossleys. Smith admitted that he was Mr Lloyd and married Margaret Lofty, but denied that he was Smith who married Miss Burnham. But on being told that the witnesses were on the way to identify him, he had then admitted being the Smith that married Miss Burnham. But he still maintained that he's not Mr Williams who married Bessie. Bessie Mundy. And then he denied that he was Mr Lloyd who married Margaret Lofty. All very confusing. On the same day, the 1st of February 1915, Bernard Spilsbury began exhuming the women who had died while having baths while married to Smith. On the 23rd of March 1915, Smith was charged with the murder of the three women, although he was only indicted on the murder of Bessie Mundy. The trial was held at the Old Bailey on the 22nd of June 1915, the trial proving to be a landmark in British law in that previously murder had always been tried on an indictment that had to be charged by itself. You could only be charged for one murder at a time. But owing to the similarities between the three women's deaths, the prosecution argued that Smith had perfected the design for murder. The judge allowed consideration of all three crimes to be examined, 
much to the chagrin of the defence barrister, Marshall Hall, as it virtually made sure that Smith would be found guilty. The trial was followed closely by the media, giving some welcome relief to the war news, and it was a topic of conversation amongst the public who were very interested in the case. Mr Bodkin for the prosecution was to try to prove that Smith had a system regarding the murder of the women and drawing attention to the striking similarities in the three murders. Mr Bodkin's argument being, firstly, in each case there is a death in a bath and in each case Smith had moved into the house with a bathroom or fitted the bathroom less than a week before the death. Secondly, in each case, the bathroom in which the death took place was an unlocked bathroom so that Smith could freely enter at the time of his choosing. Thirdly, in each case, the deceased woman made her will in favour of Smith the week before her death. In Bessie's case, it was five days before at Hearn Bay. That was in 1912. In Alice's case, it was five days at Blackpool in 1913. And it was the same day for Margaret Lofty in Highgate in London in 1914. Fourthly, in two of the cases, the deceased woman ensured her life by a policy within days of her death. It was eight days at Blackpool and seven days at Highgate that the women had taken out in, uh, ins life assurance. In the case of Bessie's death, there was no insurance policy because she was already she already had a small fortune that Smith was due to inherit. Fifth, in each case, all the debts due to the deceased, all savings and bank accounts and loans, had been called in just prior to death, thus maximising the victim's wealth. Six, in each case, two or three days before death, the deceased is taken to a strange doctor complaining of a headache, and that same doctor is called in after the death give a death certificate. Seven, in each case a letter is written to the relatives by the deceased before her death. Eight, in each case, as the woman was about to be found drowned, Smith had gone out to buy food. He was buying fish at Herne Bay, eggs at Blackpool and tomatoes at Highgate. Nine, in each case, Smith finds a drowned woman and leaves her in the water until somebody has seen her in the water. 10. In each case, Smith has gone through a bigamous sham marriage within weeks before the woman is found dead. 11. In each case, the woman, the woman dying benefits Smith more than her living. 12. In each case, Smith buries the woman as quickly as cheaply and obscurely as possible. 13. After each murder, Smith goes back and spends time with Edith Pegler. And finally, 14. Smith murders on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, with the intention of holding an inquest on the Saturday before any relatives have a chance to attend the inquest. So, that was Smith's design for murder. As already explained, the trial was huge news, and the fact that Bernard Spilsbury was to give evidence heightened the interest. 
The defence objected to Spilsbury giving evidence on the grounds that the cause of death by drowning was not in dispute. But the prosecution was successful in their argument that Spilsbury was there to try to explain how the drownings had occurred. Spilsbury explained in some detail about the exclamations that he had performed on the three women. On Beatrice Constant Annie Williams, a.k.a. Bessie, who died on the 13th of July 1912, aged 35, Spilsbury described how he examined the body in an advanced state of decomposition. He said that Bessie's height was 5 foot 7 inches, explaining that an undertaker's measurements are not a good guide to the height of a person, as they're often 2 or 3 inches out, as a person's feet and toes dip after death, making them appear taller. Bessie's body was well covered in fat, and the skin on her thighs and abdomen had a condition known as goose skin, a condition that occurs in some cases of sudden death, a sort of corrugating of the skin. He found no evidence of bruising, but given the state of decomposition, it would be unlikely to have been noticeable if there had been any. The internal organs were next examined and found to be badly decomposed. He was not able to distinguish the, land, the lungs, but he found nothing abnormal. Next, Billsby travelled to Blackpool to exhume and examine Alice Smith's, or Alice Burnham's, corpse. The coffin was taken from the ground, the plate saying Alice Smith died December the 12th, 1913, aged 25 years. Spilsby said that her body was in an even more advanced state of decomposition. She appeared to be a very well-nourished woman, fat with large breasts and buttocks. He could not measure her due to her decomposition, but estimated her height from her thigh bone, which he thought would have been about 4 feet 11 inches. On examining her organs, there was some thickening of the heart valve, although the arteries appeared healthy. The mitral valve showed some damage, indicating an illness in the past, such as rheumatic fever, which Alice didn't have as a child. Damage to this valve could cause what is sometimes known as a hole in the heart, when blood leaks backwards, but it was very unlikely to cause a collapse in a young woman taking a bath. So Spilsbury directly contradicted the evidence that Dr Billings gave at Alice's inquest. Spilsbury saying that he could find no possible reason why Alice would faint or have a fit in the bath. Spilsby went on that on the 4th of February 1915, he exhumed the grave that bore the brass plate. Margaret Elizabeth Lloyd died the 19th of December 1914, aged 38. On examination, he found her to be 5 feet 2 inches and a well-nourished spare woman. He found evidence of bruising on the arm that seemed to have been caused at the same time by separate forces caused just before death. Could this be the result of being forced down in the bath? The brain was decomposed and had been cut up during the original post-mortem. All of the organs appeared to be healthy, so again no possible reason was found for a fit or a faint in the bath. Spilsby said that the medication prescribed by the doctors would not cause the women to have fainted while in the bath. Spilsby also found no credible reason why the woman would have died in the bath unless they had been forced face downwards into the water, perhaps by the feet being held, uh, being held up and the face being forced into the water. 
Dr William Wilcox backed up Bernard Spilsby's evidence, arguing that it was not possible for the women to have drowned in the way it was explained at the three inquests. However, the deaths could be explained if the women's feet were held up and the face was immersed in water, possibly in as little as eight inches of water. If the feet are peeled up and the body is held at a right angle to the bath, that would explain how the women drowned without there appearing to be any struggle. Various other points were just debated at length. For example, the piece of soap clutched in Bessie Monday's right hand. That was a matter of some debate. Professor Glaister argued that any objects clasped in the hand of a drowning person, such as reeds or sticks, are a safe indication that death was due to drowning, as the person would cling to anything that came to hand to try to save themselves. Bernard Smallsby did not agree, saying that when unconscious, when consciousness is lost, the soap would drop out of the hand in relaxation. A lot of time was spent debating such points that did not seem to prove anything. However, I do suppose this indicates that trials in law courts in England are thorough and examine every aspect of a case. Detective Inspector Neil was commended by the judge at the trial. It would have been easy for the police not to have made much of an effort in the case of the brides in the bath, given the outbreak of war, and that all the new pressures that were put on the police at the time of war. At the trial, Neil explained how Smith was arrested for false entry on the marriage register at Bath. Neil then had to construct a case against Smith, who denied everything. Eventually, Smith was charged with the murder of Margaret Lofty at 14 Bismarck Road on Holloway on the 18th of December 1914, Alice Burnham at Blackpool on the 12th of December 1913, and Beatrice Constant Annie Mundy at Herm Bay on the 13th of July 1912. George Smith continued to deny being involved in the murders, and it was up to D.I. Neal to build the case against him. Marshall Hall had an impossible job as a defence barrister. In his closing speech, he didn't really have anything to base a defence. He argued that the insurance policies on the lives of Alice and Margaret were endowment policies, which were more expensive than all life insurance policies, which would have made Smith more profit. Marshall Hall also argued that Smith had lived with Edith Pegler for some time and had always been a good husband to her. As a matter of fact, this wasn't true because Smith had beat uh, Edith Pegler in the past and deserted her for long periods of time, so I don't see how he could be described as being a good husband. The crimes committed must have been committed by a mad person, according to Marshall Hall. But you've seen Mr Smith, and he's not mad, so how could he have committed these crimes? Such were the desperate arguments put forward by the defence. Marshall Hall argued that it was impossible to drown a woman in eight inches of water. If Smith had grabbed the woman by the feet, they would have fought back, and there was no signs of a struggle. If you tried to drown a kitten, it would scratch you. Don't you think these women would have scratched? The woman could only be drowned in such a way if they had been drugged, and there was no evidence of this, according to Marshall Hall. Then, of course, Marshall Hall came out with the usual plea of the defence. Can you be absolutely sure that Smith murdered the women? It seems that 
Marshall Hall thought it reasonable assumption that Smith had bigamously married three women, all who accidentally died in a bath within a week of their marriage. The judge, Justice Scruton, began a long summing up of the case. He told the jury that he had put in a large room in the court three baths in which the women had died, and he suggested that the jury experimented in them in a similar fashion that Bernard Spilsbury and the police had experimented coming up with their theory of the feet being pulled up, submerging the head. Experiments carried out in the bath satisfied the detectives that a woman could be held under the water without inflicting any bruising on her. During the course of uh, their experiments, a policewoman, a nurse, had volunteered to take part and was nearly drowned and had to be revived by artificial uh, resuscitation. The judge went on to explain points of law, spending an age, for example, explaining what circumstantial evidence was, giving several examples which must have confused the jury, but certainly confused me as he laboured the point so much. The judge did make the point well that in the case of a calculated and cold-blooded murders, it's rare to have direct evidence. In proving murder, the exact mode of killing becomes immaterial if there is sufficient evidence to satisfy a jury that there was a killing under conditions that made it murder. The judge also made the point that George Smith did not go into the witness box to testify. The implication being that if he was innocent, it would be reasonable that uh, he would want to tell his side of the story. The judge said that if it was him, he would go on oath if he was innocent in an attempt to clear himself. Smith has not done what you'd expect an innocent man to do. In the past, Smith had readily given evidence at the three inquests for the dead women. He was cross-examined and answered all questions. The prisoner now has the chance to tell his side of the story, but he's not done it. Why would he refuse to do this if he was innocent? The judge drew attention to the amount of lies that Smith had told and how he could not be trusted, but made the point that being a liar does not make him a murderer. It was also pointed out that at times during the court case, Smith had been extremely agitated and other times sat quietly. It's up to the jury to decide if the man... If Smith is a man of balanced character, or is, is he rather unstable? Such remarks giving little secret of what the judge's views were on Smith. Smith shouted out, You might as well hang me at once, the way you're going on. Then the judge proceeded to go through the known history of George Smith in some detail, which had already been well covered during the trial. But again, some points were well made such as if Smith is guilty, he would be anxious to kill the women as soon as he could, as the marriages were bigamous and Edith Pegler could find out about them the longer that he lives with a bigamous wife. That gives him more chance of being found out. The judge drew attention to the poor decisions of the coroner's inquests and the fact that the doctors had changed their original opinions. Then, long considerations about the position of the bodies in the bath. The prisoner shouting out again, Just hang me now and get done with it. There were some amusing incidents. The judge drew attention to, such as when the witness, when a witness was asked, when giving evidence about Smith's only legal wedding, 
the witness was asked how the date of the wedding was arranged. The witness blurted out that it was arranged while he was in prison. The judge had to tell the jury to ignore that remark, which I would imagine would be quite a difficult ask. When the jury was sent out to consider their verdict at 2.48, they were back at 3.10. I'd imagine that must be some sort of record quick time in coming to a decision. The verdict was, of course, guilty. Guilty to the willful murder of Beatrice Annie Constant Mundy. When the judge asked George Smith for his comment, George said that he was innocent. In sentencing, the judge said that he entirely agreed with the verdict and that sometimes a judge will use this occasion to warn the public against the repetition of such crime and ask the prisoner to show some repentance. The judge said that he would do neither in this case as the comments would be wasted on the prisoner and surely no one else would carry out such crimes. The sentence was that Smith would be hanged by the neck until dead. This was to be carried out at Maidstone Prison and afterwards the body was to be buried within the precincts of the prison. The judge then told the jury information that had been withheld during the trial. They were told that three months before the murder of Margaret Lofty, Smith had gone through another ceremony of marriage with another woman and he robbed her of £140 within ten days. Just prior to that, he went through another ceremony of marriage with another woman who he also robbed of a large sum of money. Smith remained at uh, Pentonville Prison until August the 14th when he was moved to Maidstone Prison. The last few days of his life were passed in great protestation and constant tears. On August the 9th he wrote to Edith Pegler and listened to a Wesleyan minister who was sent to comfort him. But he found no hint of penitence in Smith or any sign of a confession. The execution was set for August the 13th. Doesn't quite make sense that. Must be the 14th. Or 15th maybe. Anyhow, on the morning of of his execution he was in a state of collapse and had to be assisted to the scaffold, taking three times the usual time to get him there. Outside the prison a large crowd had collected many of whom were women of all ranks. There was a great babble of noise, but at 8am a great silence fell in the blaze of summer sunshine, and so ended the life of George Joseph Smith, a male whose love of mastery over women, including humiliation, approached the pathological limit, stealing everything to leave them destitute, allowing their naked bodies to be viewed by strangers, However, his main objective was money. He wanted to make money from them. I've just checked. It was the 13th of August 1915 when George Smith was executed. So the date I gave you about him going to uh, Maystone Prison was incorrect. So it must have been the 12th of August, I suppose. Anyhow... I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. And until next time, I'll say goodbye. Goodbye and thank you.